podcast through our website. And so um, people who are not here can hear this part of our meeting together. And so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. This is a, um, a single chapter that, like all the Proverbs, is, contains uh, what a proverb is, is a pithy, short statement that kind of wraps up a lot of observations in a sort of poetic way and then makes a statement that's mostly true, if not always true, it's, but it's a like, you know, life is like this, and it explains it. But Proverbs are not promises, and so it's not 100% applicable. Like when Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is a promise. Whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That's a promise. That's a for sure 100%. But a proverb is more of a wisdom observation. Life usually works this way. Like things like, I rarely see an old person who hasn't lived a fairly righteous life, right? Righteousness leads to white gray hair, I think, the, or white hair, the proverb says. But that doesn't mean that everybody who dies young is unrighteous, nor does it mean that everybody who um, is righteous will live a long life. It's just, in general, as a proverb of life, that's kind of true, right? That's the it's the vices of this world that shorten our lifespan. Even the insurance company knows that, right? What are the questions they ask you when you apply for life insurance? Do you drive a mo Yeah, do you, yeah, they could use that one. Uh, do you drive a motorcycle? Are you a pilot? You know, all these dangerous things you could do. Uh, but do you smoke? Do you drink? You know, they want to know what your lifestyle is because it has an actuarial impact on how much life insurance are they going to charge you or how much they're going to charge you for. So it's a proverb, right? It's a general rule. The stats are there. So proverbs are that way, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of wisdom in them for sure, right? That's what they are. They're wisdom literature, and they want us, the, God gave them to us to make us wise and, and to recognize the Lord Jesus in the wisdom and so this particular chapter, chapter 30, are the sayings of a guy named, how would you, would you pronounce that? Agar or Agar? Agar? A-G-U-R, I want to say Agar. And, um, and so they're the sayings of Agar and the son of Jekah, an oracle. And so this whole chapter is from a particular author that the text is telling us is not Solomon, but we don't know anything else about this guy, except that Solomon included it in the material of the Proverbs. And so the whole chapter 30 is sort of this guy's poem. And if you look at it closely, you can break it into sections. There's a lot of little standalone stand stories. If, if it were a uh, TV series, these would each be episodes, maybe, or there's... It's the same speaker, but there's an episode about this and an episode about this. And so it seems like there's individual stories. And, um, and there's some just straight-up poetry, some parts that are really kind of just poetically uh, stated. And it's not so much an instruction of what to do as much as it is a drawing of what life is like. For example, if you look at the one, one of my favorite ones is... Um, starting at verse 18. 
And he, he's the guy who does this. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do to understand. So he has this poetic device he uses several times. There's n number of things that are nasty, and there's n plus one. It's, it's like there's this, as I'm thinking about it, I, I kind of play this game in family conversations. It's like I, I can think of three things. First this, 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 and I haven't thought of the third one yet. You know, I, I just kind of make up the number before I get started. And so... Um, I don't know if that, I'm certainly that's not what it is, but it's a sort of a poetic device, right? So in verse 18, there are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. So it's just poetry, three, actually there's four. And then he says, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. And that's just super thought-provoking. I'm not sure there's any instruction in there. I don't know what you're supposed to do different, but it's thought-provoking. And so the, he, he has a number of those kinds of things. While we're talking about what, what would you say if you were sharing this with someone what is, what is the application of Proverbs 30, 18, and 19? What is a, how would you use that to, how are you instructed by it? What, is it just artistic? Or is there something we're supposed to take from this? Uh, what would, obviously, there has to be something to take from it. What is, what is this four things that are so amazing? The, the uh, eagle in the sky, snake on a rock, ship on the sea, and a man and a maiden. What's he trying to tell us? Okay, I want to get your voice so I can have other people hear it. just how amazing God's creation is, you know, the mechanism for how the eagle flies in the sky and how a ship can uh, withstand the high seas. And I would say control. What, what aspect of control? Well, the ship controls the high sea. Um, and the eagle is in control of the sky. I mean, he can fly. Yeah. And the serpent on a rock, I think he's probably thinking he's a king. And I don't know about the last one. <laughs> that was a wise change of subject on that one. <laughs> because uh, that whole control thing gets messy in a hurry on that one. <laughs> Other, uh, Joe had his hand up on the screen. Oh, you took it. She took it. Okay, so the first observation that Taryn had was that it was just a um, a reminder of God's creative magna magnificence, right? His creative beauty, and then also Pat submits the idea that it's it's a evidence of phenomenal control. How can an eagle do that, Steve? Well, again, the fourth one is hard to fit in, but uh, I was thinking each is sort of in its element. Right? The eagle is in its element in the sky. 
the snake on the rock, the, uh, the ship in the high seas. And I think there's maybe an element to, um, yeah, a young man with a young woman is, is, can be in his element. Not me, personally, at, when I was a young man, but conceivably somewhere. And my other thought was, it's turbulent on those high seas, so maybe that fits with the last one, too. <laughs> yeah. From my perspective, Steve, you are a young man and your wife is a young woman, so you're still fit. So the way is just as amazing. So, um, But it is an interesting thing, the, the fitness of it, right? The eagle particularly designed for that kind of soaring. And, and look at what he says. He said, these things are amazing to me. They're too wonderful, I think the King James said. They're, I can't. They're just beyond. Who would have ever thought? So they seem miraculous almost to him. How does a snake do that? I, I, you, when I watch a snake at the zoo, if they're moving, um, if they're not at the zoo behind glass, I'm moving. Okay, <laughs> So I don't watch them very long that way. But when you watch, I, it's so weird. How does that muscle move the rest of the body away by... by by, um, what's that word? Um, slithering or pushing, you know, they push their muscle. And so every part of that snake's body knows to go around that stick and push the same way. And so it looks like it's a train, but it's the muscle making that happen totally smoothly. It's just like so creepy, actually. Or a sidewinder, the way that they go across a rock, it's just so weird how it can navigate and move sideways there's a Johnny Quest. You remember Johnny Quest, the cartoon? There's that episode with the snakes. Two of them are doing the exact same thing to save animation costs, and the other one's doing it a little different. But they're going sideways, and every time I notice that, that snake winding sideways. So there's an amazingness to it. And then the ship on the sea, what's so amazing about a ship on the sea? They, they float? What were you going to say, Donna? I mean, you wouldn't take a canoe on the high sea normally or a fishing boat, but a ship that's built for the high sea is built to withstand it, uh, built to be able to navigate it. It's, it's what it was designed to do and be. And the eagle, when he was designed, was designed to be able to fly and soar, but they also have eyesight that is amazing, designed specifically for them to be able to see that tiny little mouse hiding So the design and the coolness of it and the, um, see what makes the eagle kind of hard to understand is they never have to flap their wings. How does it keep flying without making effort? Well, we know it's updrafts and picking up the currents and all that. But if you were just sitting there watching, you'd say, what, it's making it go. And the snake moves in a way, what's making it go? And I think the ship on the sea thing is not just the idea of the seas being high seas, but the idea that a sailboat can sail into the wind. How do you do that? That's really, I'm a sailor. I, I sailed quite a bit in my high school years. My, this is one of the advantages of being the youngest in your family is all of your older siblings have toys that you get to grow up enjoying with them. And my brother and his wife had a sailboat. And so 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, I spent almost my whole summers on Lake Michigan. 
And we could sail, you can't sail straight into the wind, but you can sail about 30 degrees off the wind in any direction. So if the wind's out of the south and you want to go south, you just zigzag back and forth, but you get there. How does that work? Is not, I can explain it, but it's still kind of a phenomenon that a sailboat doesn't just go the direction of the wind. It can tack. Actually, the most fun is going straight sideways to the wind because that's the fastest and the strongest lean was always most exciting to lean the sailboat that way. And the other weird thing about it was that no matter how wavy Lake Michigan was, a sailboat cuts right through it. It doesn't, you don't get seasick. It's when it's not windy that you get seasick because now you're rocking everywhere. But a sailboat doesn't rock. It just cuts. And the waves go, you go up and down, but you don't, you don't waddle. A motorboat waddles. A sailboat just, so cool. So if those are the things that are amazing, 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 what does it tell us about man and woman relationships? That's the part he doesn't understand. That's right. If, if, yeah. Is that what? So Larry's theory is, is he understood all three of the first, but when it came to that last one, he, that's why he says four that I don't understand. That, that may be the poetic device right there. John. Well, I was just thinking about that. When God made man and woman to be together, that's what we were made for. And we've messed it up, but still, you know, it is, it is our design is to be together and to Mary produced children. It's, that's what we were designed to do. So we are within our element, again, doing what we are supposed to do if we're doing it by God's way. It is, it is a beautiful thing, what God has created. I guess I've never looked at it in that context, John. I guess I've looked at it and maybe presumed that he doesn't understand how a man, maybe a married man, can fall for a maiden when that's not his lot in life. I've always looked at it as the not go together. I didn't look at it as, yes, I didn't look at it as John said that God made them to go together. I was looking at it as, yeah, it's like how a man can get stumbled up by a woman, a married man, happy in his life. Uh, that's the way I looked at it all these years. Yeah, that is certainly content that's in the Proverbs to warn us about. But I think in this place, I think it's a, I think it's a, um, I think it's an admiration. There's something about the way that Tammy can just flicker her eye a little bit, and I know a lot. Right? It, it's it's amazing. It's, <laughs> See, you see, isn't it, it's be, nobody can explain how that eagle keeps flying. Oh. I think I was going to go a little bit where Larry was going, but I mean, verse 20 goes on and talks about adultery and an adulterous woman. So there's definitely a connection because he doesn't get to the next three things until after he puts verse 20 in there. So there's definitely a linkage there, I think, between the, the two and you. You talked about how much you had to know to operate the sailing. Well, yeah. you have to have the same kind of knowledge to a relationship between a husband and wife. And 
if you don't do it well, you end up in this bad adulterous situation, or could be. Yeah, I, I can see the possibility of a warning, but it ruins my whole worldview, so I'm trying not to. In that case, anyway, I, I've, I've always viewed it as amazingly beautiful, and that there's something about courtship that, you know, it's just, it's Renee. I know. It's a Renee and David story. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. I mean, it's just super unexpectedly beautiful how God works. So I, I see the warning in other texts, but I also see places in the Bible where it's praised. It's God's beautiful design. Um, Adam saw her and she said, He's, this, is, this is made for me. Whoa, man. That's what he... <laughs> All right, Sue. I guess this book reminds me a little bit of Book of Job. Yeah. And um, when it first starts, it talks about, um, like he says, it says, verse 2, I am only a brute, and I have no, not human understanding. I have not learned wisdom. And then it goes on like in Job where it talks about who can know, have you put the sun in the sky and things like that. So I think some of these things that he you know, doesn't understand and is talking about, it reminds me of when God talked to Job and said, yeah, you don't understand these things. Yeah, there's a flow of reasoning that in, in the overall chapter that's intriguing for sure. And his introductory statement is uh, particularly interesting. When thinking about the introductory statement, it's about, he describes it as almost too amazing to understand. Like you can't, when you see the eagle soaring for so long without flapping its wings, you can't, it's hard to understand her. There's the, we get that, we've talked about that sense of awe and majesty of the creator, but part of the reason when we do that is because it seems so unnatural to see it happen that way, to see something fly without moving. And with the snake, on the rock, not only does it slither weird, but sometimes uh, a snake will like rear up, kind of like a cobra, right? and it will stand on its own power in a way that it doesn't seem like it should be able to stand. And a ship on the high seas feels like it should tip over at any moment, but yet a ship does not fall over on the high seas. So I wonder if this is a, if going along that line's in, it's amazing perhaps, the part that's amazing about the young man, the young woman, is that it ever actually works. It's kind of an amazing thing that it, these two people who are in a broken world at this point, because the proverb writer lives in the broken world and understands the broken world. It's amazing that these two uh, broken people can enter into a loving relationship or in a relationship that is far beyond and perhaps un less understandable than what it should be. So it could be too amazing or so amazing because it works so well but it could also be so amazing that it works at all is an interesting thought too well I, I wanted to introduce that poetic content with that little stanza and we have 10 minutes left to discuss the proverb 30 as a whole and so I was going to offer you the opportunity to which would be another stanza you'd like us to discuss and um, in there, I, we could, I don't want to try to capture it all, it's just too much material, but it, the, 
there's another stanza that I find very interesting. Twenty-four through twenty-eight. But um, if you would like to have us discuss a different one, I'm certainly willing to do that. So let me let you search for a little while and see if somebody has a question on one of them that we could discuss together. Steve? Yeah, maybe not a question, but I've always appreciated the seven through nine, which is two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse before I die. Um, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. It just seems like a, I don't know, I think I've prayed that before. So. That's a really wise, yeah, that's really wise counsel, isn't it? He, um, he recognizes his own propensity toward idolatry and towards discontentment. So he's asking for the, he doesn't trust himself outside the boundaries. And boy, I, I think that having a healthy distrust of yourself is really wise. It's when you're wise in your own eyes, which he references a few other places in this chapter, a person who's wise in their own eyes. That gets us into so much trouble when we think we've got it figured out. So that's really good. Any other observations or, or questions from parts of the proverb that you'd like to say something about? Twenty nine through thirty one seems most similar to you. Is that the is that the one I? What's the what? Oh yeah, stately in their stride. Yeah, that's a really cool part too. Is that the what is it? The lion as he walks along is the rooster a he goat, which I don't know much about for sure. And a king with his army around him. So again, this this escalation, um, nature, 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 a human, nature, nature, ship, human. So that that is similar to that other one, that poetic way. And there is something about the way a lion walks that no other animal. I was thinking about that one. Cats just don't care, <laughs> right? They just they're in charge. But the the rooster has a stride that's cocky. Isn't that where we get the word from? <laughs> and the um, the hego, I don't know what that, I have no picture in my mind for that one at all. The only goats I laugh at are the ones that tip over. <laughs> don't turn your back on a goat, they'll, they'll, they'll run into you. We, we have all the funny videos of the goats that have this phenomenon where they just lose their strength and fall over. They get scared. Have you seen that? My mom tells a story when she was a little girl that they had a goat like that. So, so I just don't have a he goat story in my head. But then the uh, the king, with his army around him, I I'm almost um, I can see that you know the king walking without fear. Pleased by his subjects, he's happy. 
Interesting. Any other thoughts or observations, insights from the Proverbs 30? Yeah, so Pat is asking about verse 33, and I'm going to read 32 with it just to get... So, if you have played the fool and exalted yourself, or if you have planned evil, clap your hand over your mouth. For, so in my translation, it seems to make a connective logic. For as churning the milk produces butter. So that's the way real life works. If you stir, churn up milk, it turns butter, right? And as twisting the nose produces blood, so you can give somebody a bloody nose by going, I guess. I've never tried that, but I don't want to. But I, apparently it makes sense to me, right, that you could grab somebody's nose. So as those two cause and effects happen, if you stir up anger, you produce strife. So it's a cause and effect kind of law, a proverbic law, that if you stir up anger, if your motivational scheme for your movement is built on anger, hmm, ever hear of that before? Is there anything like that going on? Isn't that the way the world works right now? Is How can I make my audience outraged so I can get more money from them? It produces strife. It does not lead to peace. You can't, you can't get peace by being angry to get there. Interesting. Any other thoughts or contents, comments? It's an interesting proverb. I remember... Um, Verse 17, the eye that mocks a father, that scorns obedience to a mother, that eye will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley and will be eaten by the vultures. The first time I heard that was at the uh, seminar when I was in high school, and the teacher was teaching that basically when you are a rebellious person, you will lose your faculties and and the enemy will pick at your eye because that's how the vulture first finds out that the body is dead. Because if you won't protect your eye, then you're dead. And so it was an indication that you, that if you mock your parents and rebel in that way, that you are headed toward a destructive end. So that's a strong warning for sure. Yeah. Tim knows who the speaker was to which I reference, and he wishes that the speaker had practiced what he preached because that man in his ministry ultimately fell because of his own failure to be humble. He was wise in his own eyes, maybe. Seems like. He's a great teacher, though. Any other thoughts or observations? Well, I, okay, Donna, good.
I guess I've been thinking about the last part of verse 33, the stirring up anger produces strife. If you have any doubt about that, just go sit in one of the local courtrooms for a few hours. And there's a lot of cases that started out with anger then produced strife. The New Testament reminds us that anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires. And so in our anger, we should not sin. There's a place for passion. There's a place for righteous indignation. The Lord Jesus was angry. God has wrath. But there's a, that's different than the stirring up and, and anger that's selfish. And, yeah. Becky? Well, that reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount when and Jesus says, you know, even if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder against them, right? And then if you pair that with the verses that Steve brought about daily bread, which really informs the Lord's Prayer, you see a lot of Jesus' teaching in this in this chapter. I, I That's a really good reminder that there is, Lord Jesus was informed by this material, and he and you see textual references to it in his own teaching. But I also see the interesting, um, at that very beginning, the introductory paragraph where, where the, the man says, uh, you know, in verse uh, 4, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Or who gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has established, or who wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And the name of his son. Tell me if you know. I think that's an interesting, almost prophetic. You see, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is often personified as a lady, as a great lady. And in Proverbs 31, she, she reaches the climax in that woman of virtuous character. This, And early on, the the father tells the son, you need to seek wisdom. Seek after her with all your heart. She's more precious than rubies. And then wisdom is personified in a poem, I think, in chapter 3 and chapter 6, too, or a couple of times. Wisdom calls out in the street. She calls out, hey, everybody listen to me. I'm trying to tell you. you know, so she calls out, and nobody hears her in the wisdom. And so wisdom is personified as a woman throughout the text as the wife of noble character and for the young man this is the kind of woman you need to pursue this is the kind of life value she her value is far above rubies right but then here in king or this guy named Edgar's uh, thing he talks about where were you when I did these things and what is the name of his son and so it's almost a personification of wisdom as the son and so I think there are other passages that you could, that'll preach that could go for how Jesus is the one who, through whom he is, he is wisdom from God. He's the ultimate wisdom. He's the one through whom all the creation was created. It was Jesus's design to make the eagle, the snake, the sea, and man and woman. And so... Well, are there any other closing thoughts? We're out of time on Larry's clock and my clock. So. All right, Father in heaven, help us to be wise. Um, 
help us to not trust ourselves, to recognize that we are prone toward idolatry in any extreme. And so we do ask for contentment with daily bread, and we do ask for wisdom and, and grace from you that we wouldn't um, be neither too wealthy nor too poor, that we would fall out of balance or that we would live in a way that displeases you. Forgive us for the times that we're wise in our own eyes and for those of us whom we love who are trapped by their own wisdom in their own eyes. We pray for them too that they would come to recognize that, they, that we all need to humble ourselves before you and receive your son, the Lord Jesus. That is his name and we thank you for him in his name. Amen. <laughs>